something magical must have happened. I guess a bunch of stardust was sprinkled over my terrified head because after a few months, I began to feel comfortable volunteering to be on stage. I learned that performing in front of a group of people was safe, though I still wasn't able to deal with one person at a time. At this point, I may have unconsciously decided that finding one person to be in a relationship with was going to be impossible, so getting better at performing in order to become famous was essential. Hello and welcome back to the Vintage Podcast with me, Lena Norms. Uh, how's your January doing? Are you having a dry January? Having a wet January? Let me know how your January was uh, at Vintage Books on Twitter. I'm sitting there waiting for your feedback. My January has been brilliant and all the more brilliant for getting to meet Simon Amstel, uh, the comedian, screenwriter and director. You might know him from his huge presenting career or when he wrote and starred in Grandma's House or the incredible stand-up comedy that he does. But did you know that Simon started doing stand-up comedy when he was only 13 years old? His parents had just divorced, puberty was confusing, trying to be funny solved everything. Almost. I invited Simon into the Vintage Book Studios to talk about his book Help, which is now out in paperback as of January. Very exciting. So I'm going to play you some clips from that amazing chat and I'm also going to play you a clip of Simon's audiobook of Help, which uses some original clips from his career to date, including um, a clip that you'll hear of him at 13 doing stand-up. So you've got to stay tuned for that. Um, But for now, I'll leave you with me talking to Simon. So, Simon, thank you so much for coming in to chat to us. I'll try and not give you too much of a hard time. You can do do whatever you want. (laughs) Do what I will um, with you. So um, I just wanted to chat a little bit about your book. I found it absolutely bloody hilarious. I was snorting on the tube. I might have dribbled some snot on the back of it, but I'm still, I'm sure that it's still worth something. (laughs) 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 I'm sure sure I haven't completely decimated it. Um, So um, could you explain what the book's about to people who don't know? It's called Help. Mm -hmm. It's about me and it is half stand-up transcripts, which will hopefully make you laugh and feel things, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And then the rest of it is all new writing uh, to do with various things, including my mother, sex, going to brew and drinking ayahuasca. (laughs) No, but I particularly, I really liked the part, especially when you came out to your family and like the way they reacted was like you reported it in this way that was... Like, very honest, but also, like, I don't know if your family are genuinely that funny in the way that they react to things. <laughs> well, it didn't so feel like, funny at the they, time. Yeah, no, it didn't, doesn't feel <laughs> funny, but you've got, like, a warmth towards them, even though you're, like, probably directly reporting what they said. Yeah. Just, you're not judging them for their opinions on it. No. It's full of compassion, this book. Yeah. Yeah, That's... it's sort of... Uh, I think enough time has gone by that if I was still angry, that would, I'd be that I'd just only be hurting myself, right? Yeah. Have they read it? Yeah, my mum has. Mm-hmm. I don't think my dad has, and yeah, my mum has, and my a couple of my siblings have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are some people who will just remain angry. Right. Yeah. So <laughs> you you're know, like, well, I might as well they, publish. You know, when it. people ask, like, is anyone angry from this thing that you've done? And it's, but they were already. They were in a <laughs> state of anger. Angry. Yours wasn't really like no, amping it up or down. I don't think so. Very much. Maybe slightly up, but mm-hmm. you know, I think the greater good is that people relate to something and feel like, oh, yes, I have a aunt or uncle like that it was difficult for me too yeah i feel like my focus is on helping the young person who's got this deranged family to deal with you're just like the deranged families are everywhere yeah (laughs) i i i think i think the pressure to make it a good book 
mm. outweighed any strangeness. I think I was just feeling quite troubled for a long time with a lot of post-it notes up on a wall, trying to figure out how to put it in the right order and uh, what to write uh, mm. to go with the stand-up. And so if I felt like it was strange, um, I quite quickly just felt worried. Like what I really loved was your, like the story of like your journey to becoming a comedian, and it felt like almost accidental in some ways. You said that um, like the you just responded to a moment of fear with a joke, <laughs> and that kept working, so you kept doing it. Yeah, I think that's the that's what happens, isn't it, with everyone? Do you with think e- that happens with all comedians and anyone with any defense mechanism. So whatever you've got, if it's shyness or um, being muscly. I think there's been a moment of fear where you felt threatened and vulnerable and you've needed to do something so the next time you're ready. Yeah. So do you feel like becoming a comedian was an accident or do you think that you would or you would always have been one? Or Like maybe if you'd responded in a different way in that moment, you could have... Yeah, if I'd have if you hit had the done guy. a dance. Yeah, if I'd have done a dance. <laughs> you might have been in prison or been on the ballet yeah, stage. Yeah, I, it's, hard to, but it's hard to tell. And do we have any free will anyway? I don't yeah, know. That's... I don't know. <laughs> All being controlled by a by a man with a big finger pushing us around the earth. Yeah, hopefully not a man. <laughs> Is it, hopefully, not, hopefully it's a woman. Yeah, with a with a nice finger. with a nice finger. <laughs> <laughs> um, but do you think like what else would you have been? Do you think if you weren't a comedian, or do you think this is this is like you know should we mix predestination and 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 jobs? I don't know. But do you think what else would you have been if you weren't a comedian? <sighs> I don't know. I'd quite. I'd, there's still a fantasy that I could be a psychotherapist. Ooh. Yeah, I yeah. still think that I could be that guy, but I'm quite busy <laughs> and possibly too self-involved. Yeah, but you've. I suppose from having therapy and stuff, you've learnt mm. some of the techniques. Do you have any problems to... I could really sort oh my you God, out? Yeah. Do you think that being a comedian is inherently a cry for help? Because there's lots of moments where you like joke, but then go into a more serious um, reflection on on like the need to. Um, want to be seen by an audience and have that kind of like passive acceptance rather than more intimate relationships do you think it is or do you think do you think you found like a healthy way to be a comedian now do you think it's like there's different kinds of comedians hmm gosh these are very good sorry (laughs) i did say once in an interview that um sometimes i i'm surprised when people laugh because i feel like they should be saying are you all right (laughs) But I think maybe it was a bit of an exaggeration. Maybe that's that's the audience's way of dealing with. <laughs> yeah, like they're they're dealing it with the comedy as well. Yeah, maybe they just feel mm. really nervous and uh, mm. they end up laughing. Maybe that's my whole act. <laughs> they feel nervous because they're such a troubled person on stage. No, this none of this is true. No, no, I, think I think the reality is that by the time, certainly by the time you're on tour and you've figured out the material. Y- you've kind of healed yourself through the writing of it by that point. And Mm. so I should really be up there quite joyfully just making fun of this character that I used to be. Mm. Possibly at the beginning stages when I'm trying to figure out who I am or who I've been and why I was so upset by whatever happened, that's a more vulnerable um, and confusing place for both me and the audience to be. But I think by the time people have paid proper money, they can feel safe to know that they're going to get a good night out. <laughs> You're like, don't worry, I've worked through these issues yeah. now. I'm ready to present them. Yeah. And I'm not expecting, you know, when this book comes out, I'm not expecting people to hug me. Yeah. I, I, I'm expecting them to hopefully laugh and, and be interested and feel entertained and uh, 
maybe um, some of it could be quite useful for anything that they've got going on in their lives. Mm. Uh, so it's not, I don't think, I think I used to be coming from a more needy place. And now I think I'm less needy. But even as I say that, I'm looking at you thinking, does she think this is true? Will she like me as I say this sentence? <laughs> I'm like, he's lying. <laughs> he's obviously falling apart inside. No, yeah. But I think, like, do you, have you been surprised so far by the reactions to the book? Um, because obviously like mental health is, is a very it, it's a big topic at the moment but I think it's kind of always been a topic but we've only just started properly calling it something yeah we just it's, got we a nice sometimes phrase. like people have only just started being mentally ill I'm mm. like I think we all um, so so do you think do you, yeah has any have any of the reactions surprised you uh I feel like I'm not really there for the reactions. I didn't like, despite the title, <laughs> help. I didn't set out uh, to, to help anyone. To help else. anyone. Well, I, I, <laughs> I um, so I'm quite sick. I know. So this this podcast is going to be going out in January, mm-hmm. and I just already I can already feel the the soggy saturation of uh, life advice mm-hmm. and people saying this is how you change your life. Mm-hmm. So I thought we could do something where you give us some shit advice. Would you oh. be up for that? Sure, like okay. we need to definitely wreck these people's lives. Okay. So I've got some topics. Yeah. And we can think about ways that we could completely, you know, like the worst advice we could give, just okay. to counteract all of the good vibes that we go on in January. Does I'll try my good? best. <laughs> okay. So so the first one is career. What would mm-hmm. be like the worst advice you give to somebody for their career? Do the thing that fills you with hate <laughs> every day and yeah. don't question it. You don't question it. Just you must. You mm. must do that. Potentially somewhere far away from where you actually live, so the commute is also painful. Yes, but also living where you work can also lead to suicide. Mm. How about relationships? The worst advice you give to somebody? Um, Really wreck their relationship life. Someone who's in a relationship already? Yeah. Uh, Never talk to your partner about anything you're feeling. (laughs) Ever. (laughs) Don't do that. And if they ask? Just lie. Lie. (laughs) Always lie about how you're feeling. And then eat their food from the fridge. Yeah, what's the... I don't know. You were just hungry. I'm just projecting now. <laughs> um, how about um, hobbies? It's really, I don't think I have any hobbies. So I, don't, I can't relate to That's like, these hobbies. You're like, what are these hobbies? Like, what, like, like if someone what knits. What am hobby? <laughs> um, yeah, if so people if knit. Someone, yeah, they, um, if people knit. Jeremy Corbyn's got an allotment. Sure. Mm. Um, here's here's one that I think you might have some advice about. So food, because mm-hmm. I've I've heard that you've become you're a vegan. Yes. You're the big V, not the small V, vegetarian. You're a big V. Oh yeah, the biggest. The, v. Big, the biggest of yeah. the V's. Um. So like, what bad advice would you give people about food? I guess you'd give them the advice of like maybe what I'm already eating, which is meat. I'd say eat. I'd say if it has suffered, if it has bled, if at the point that it was taken from its mother, I also wouldn't say it. If the person that you're about to put in your mouth has suffered in any way, just chew as much as you can and really enjoy the moment. (laughs) Don't question it. Yeah. Uh, Well, I've got personal hygiene here, but I don't know what I was thinking of that. Uh, (laughs) Bad advice about personal hygiene. I suppose it would just be... Uh, don't do it never shower so we've got non-showering non-hobbied yeah people who hate their jobs who don't talk to their their partners eating lots of dead animals yes that's the dream for 2019 (laughs) good luck everybody let's go (laughs) Um, and are there any people um, that they definitely shouldn't follow we obviously don't don't follow don't follow me on Instagram or Twitter I actually think that's quite good advice (laughs) (laughs) 
Thank you so much to Simon for coming into the studio to talk to me. Uh, now is that a full promised excerpt from the audiobook Help. Let's go. Chapter one. Shy, funny, lonely. I was so shy as a child, I would cling to my mother's leg and scream if she tried to leave me somewhere like a birthday party or a school. I was terrified of anything that wasn't being at home. I remember Adam Edwards inviting me to his fifth birthday party, and I said I was busy. Sorry, Adam, let me check my diary. Oh, it's just impossible. I'm in Berlin. I really hoped I'd have a sister at some point because I was going to be too shy to find someone to marry. If there could just be someone born in this house so I could settle down with, that would be ideal. My mum and dad were advised by Mrs Posner at the school parents' evening to send me to a Saturday morning stage school called Stardust to bring me out of my shell. I guess I must have said I don't want to go to Stardust, as I remember my mum saying, what if I promise to sit outside the whole time you're there? I have no memory of anything that happened in that class, just walking in and looking back at my mum sat in the corridor. Yet something magical must have happened. I guess a bunch of stardust was sprinkled over my terrified head because after a few months, I began to feel comfortable volunteering to be on stage. I learned that performing in front of a group of people was safe, though I still wasn't able to deal with one person at a time. At this point, I may have unconsciously decided that finding one person to be in a relationship with was going to be impossible, so getting better at performing in order to become famous was essential. And then I'd never be lonely, because there'd always be fan mail. I bought a new flat about two years ago. In this flat, in the bathroom, there were two sinks. I thought that would bring me some joy. <laughs> it is a constant reminder. <laughs> and so what I've had to do, this is what I'm doing now in my life. I'm actually doing this. I'm using both sinks. I now, every day, brush my teeth in the left sink and in the right one, mainly cry. <laughs> At 11, I was too old for Stardust and began attending the Harlequin Theatre School and Agency. I may not have continued my Saturday morning stage school education, but my favourite TV show, The Big Breakfast, had just started and looked like the most fun anyone could have. More than fun, it was unconventional. It looked like freedom. I still didn't have any conscious understanding of why I needed to be so free, but I took every class that Harlequin offered. Presenting a TV show wasn't taught at Harlequin, so I studied Chris Evans. I began to dress like him, even though he dressed like a clown. I hosted my own version of The Big Breakfast in my bedroom, doing links into a camcorder while holding a clipboard and making jokes about members of a crew who cheered me in my head. I did anything that I thought could be a way into the television. Despite not being able to sing, I got the role of Pharaoh in Joseph in the annual school musical, and I put all my energy into being as funny as possible while repressing some very confusing feelings for Joseph. I learned to juggle and became very upset when my mum refused to let me have a unicycle for my birthday. Eddie Izzard had been a street performer before he became a famous comedian, and if I couldn't unicycle, I felt it could hold me back. I went to see TV shows being filmed. My mum and I went to watch the National Lottery, even though it only lasted 15 minutes. I was thrilled by cameras moving across a floor. We went to watch the Vanessa Felt show together, and I felt sure that despite it being a show presented by a woman in her 40s, four women in their 40s, and called the Vanessa Felt show, I should really be the host. The subject up for debate that day was, should I murder my husband? <laughs> At the beginning of the show, the floor manager told us that the best opinion today will win a bottle of champagne. So there's everything to play for. Should she or shouldn't she murder her husband? 20 minutes go by and people say some very interesting things. And I, at about 14 years old, stand up and say, I think you shouldn't murder your husband because you could go to prison. And I won a bottle of champagne. <laughs> at 13, I did my first stand-up gig at the Harlequin Biannual Variety Show. 
Two years earlier, I had sung and danced in the Chicago number Razzle Dazzle, wearing a silver sequin waistcoat and a matching top hat. I was actually the stand-in for a former student who didn't have time for the rehearsals, but apparently was going to perform the song on the night. I assumed he wouldn't turn up, but when the night came, he was placed centre stage and I was given a spot on the side, which was sold as generous. There was no need for me to be included, but I could dance along in the corner, dressed as a small version of the main singer, like a little monkey person. By the time my second chance at making a name for myself at the Harlequin Variety Show came around, I wouldn't even let puberty get in the way. My body kept trying to tell me that I fancied boys, and I had other stuff to deal with. My bar mitzvah, my parents' divorce, the biannual variety show. I didn't feel there was also time to fall for Leonardo DiCaprio from Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Better to begin a stand-up career and get into the television. Having now checked the dates, it seems Romeo and Juliet didn't actually come out until I was 17, so this is a false memory, and I apologise. I think the truth is I managed to repress any sexual thoughts from even awakening until I was 17, and then rendered helpless by the moving image of Leonardo DiCaprio's hair falling over his eyes as some fish swam by. It's possible I could have seen What's Eating Gilbert Grape at 13, but I think I only discovered Leo's early work much later. I'd go to the video shop and rent out every film with DiCaprio in. I remember thinking, there's going to be a record of this, it's a worry. People will say, you're in love with Leonardo DiCaprio, it says so on your video club card. When Titanic came out, I went to see it four times. Aside from the sexual attraction, I connected to the story of money getting in the way of love. My mum had remarried, and I didn't like this new stepfather character. I took my mum and grandma to the cinema to show them that true love was more important than financial security. At the end of the film, my grandma said, How could she leave such a rich man? He gave her a huge diamond and she left him for a boy who lived under a bridge? All he had was a pencil! Along with my DiCaprio premonition, I definitely had some complicated feelings for one of the boys at Harlequin. I hoped I was just impressed with his piano playing and ended up being groped in a shopping centre by his girlfriend. I wasn't sure why it was happening. She just kept grabbing my penis. We were supposed to be shopping. I was happy that she liked me because I thought it meant I was as attractive as her boyfriend, even though I couldn't play the piano. And if she liked me, was it possible that he could want me too? But did I actually want him? Or did I just want to learn the piano? I definitely didn't want to be molested by this girl in the shopping centre. But that's what I got. Meanwhile, two years after the razzle-dazzle debacle, the drama teacher told the whole group that there was a problem with the biannual variety show. He said the big tap number has been scheduled next to the big ballet number, and both dances will be performed by the same dancers in different shoes. Rather than changing the running order, or making the bold choice of presenting a ballet number featuring children in tap shoes, or a tap number that nobody would hear, they thought if they could just cover the shoe change with something in front of the curtain for five minutes, everything would be fine. I'd been watching a lot of stand-up comedy on Late Night Channel 4, mainly quite peculiar American and Canadian comedians at what must have been the Montreal Comedy Festival. They offered the same sense of freedom I felt watching The Big Breakfast. I don't think I understood what was going on or why any of it was funny, but it felt like something exciting was happening in Canada. All I really knew was that stand-up comedy was one person on a stage having an incredible time doing whatever they wanted and receiving a wild amount of what sounded like love. I had a powerful impulse to get that five-minute spot. These Saturday morning drama classes were where I felt most safe and happy. I think I knew that if I could be a comedian, I could really be in control of something. I said to the drama teacher, what about stand-up comedy? And he said, do you mean you doing stand-up comedy? I said, yeah, casually, like it was a fairly reasonable suggestion. And incredibly, he didn't say, are you sure, Simon? You know, stand-up comedy is quite tricky, and you are a child. I have a wall in my flat now of various comedic inspirations. And the, the whole wall is a lie, because I didn't know who any of these people were on my wall when I was 13. If there was any truth to that wall, I'd just be putting up a sign that reads, parents divorced, learn to juggle to stop mother crying. <laughs>
Why did nobody put a piano in front of me as a child? Then I could be a guy now who can play the piano in a bar, taking requests. There are no requests we're juggling other than don't juggle. <laughs> so at 13, a vulnerable age when a lot of young people go into themselves and become shy, I'd done shy already, and stand-up comedy didn't feel that scary. What felt scary was being fascinated with the way Leonardo DiCaprio's hair fell over his eyes, even though I hadn't seen it yet. I must have known it was coming. Quick, we need something to distract from all that beautiful hair blowing in the wind of the future. In preparation for my first stand-up set, I wrote some jokes and also stole bits from the Channel 4 shows I'd been watching. One guy had a bunch of enormous cards with words written on them. He showed a card with the word this to the audience and said, Would you look at this? Has anyone ever seen this before? Then he grabbed another card with the word that on it and shouted, What about that? I bet you weren't expecting that. I thought this is brilliant and did his act word for word. I also wrote some original material. I have a strong memory of one specific line. You're born, you go to school, you get a job, you get married, you have children, and then you die. What's the point of that? Not a funny line, but I thought it would be a good one to begin this book with, to show that I was an incredibly profound existential child prodigy. I found the VHS tape of the show, and the line isn't there. I think I may have made the memory up. According to the tape, which we must trust, I walk on stage, very confidently, despite a multicoloured waistcoat, and say this. who care more about recycling their toilet paper than actually using it. <laughs> it makes my stomach tense watching it. Why is this boy making fun of people trying to save the planet? Why is he doing some bits in an American accent? There must have also been some old 70s-style comedians still on TV because some of the jokes I did were about Irish and German people. Did I even contemplate the meaninglessness of life at 13 or was I just a normal child? No, I was doing stand-up at 13. I must have been profoundly deep and certainly troubled. Maybe there was a rehearsal where the drama teacher suggested my line wouldn't go down that well because everyone in the audience had jobs, children, and would die. I think that must be it. I was a censored child genius who understood the absurd, meaningless nature of existence and not just an oddly dressed xenophobe. There was just enough laughter to make me feel like I really wanted to do it again. Watching the tape now, it seems that a lot of that laughter was nervous and confused. It occurs to me that I hadn't actually been introduced as a comedian, so they probably thought I was doing a monologue from a play about a racist. After that, I did stand-up at a local charity show, I entered competitions for new comedians, and I was booked for my first TV gig on Good Morning with Anne and Nick, doing an impression of Dame Edna Everidge. I was in the television. I'd never be lonely again. Thank you so much for listening to the Vintage Podcast. I hope that motivated you to download Hope in Audiobook right now. Don't forget to subscribe to hear more podcasts just like this one. Come and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Vintage Books to chat more about books. All day, every day. All day, every day. Thanks for joining us and until next time. <laughs>